0: Well, tonight, we are kicking off a four-week series uh, that we're going to be starting off this semester with, and the title of the series is How to Be an Awesome Friend, and I'm going to figure out how often I can use that word awesome tonight, because it's a pretty awesome word. So, um, now, if given the choice between having okay friends or having awesome friends, how many of you would choose awesome friends? Raise your hand. Of course. Like, who would say, nah, I want okay friends? Like everybody wants awesome friends. That's that's obvious. Everybody wants awesome friends. Everybody's looking for awesome friends. But have you ever stopped to ask yourself, are you the type of awesome friend that an awesome friend you're looking for is looking for? Are you the type of awesome friend that an awesome friend is looking for is looking for? Cuz you know, you may want awesome friends, but maybe those awesome friends don't want you. You know, because you're not an awesome friend. And so that's why we're going to talk about this tonight, because um, honestly, uh, slightly joking, but you know, more so serious too. At the same time, w- unfortunately, what I see a lot of times, um, and is people they they want awesome friends. They're looking for awesome friends, but they spend all their time doing that, and they don't really spend a lot of time on figuring out: Am I actually working to become an awesome friend that people would want to be their friend in the first place? And I I really do think. Uh, like tends to attract like. I mean, you know, have you ever noticed complainers tend to find complainers? And, you're, and if you're wondering, is that true? Well, yeah, ask yourself. If you're a complainer. You probably have a, have a complaining friends. You know, uh, lazy people tend to attract lazy people. You know, loyal people tend to attract loyal people. Um, and you get the, you get the picture. Um, so if you really do want to have awesome friends, I would really encourage you, um, don't spend all your time searching for them. Work on just becoming an awesome friend, and the rest of the stuff will kind of begin to take care of itself because those people will just begin to draw to you because they want to be around you. Um, So with that being said, we're going to be talking in this series about what it means to be an awesome friend. And we're not going to cover the series, you know, exhaustively because there's so many aspects to being an awesome friend. I think I've used the word at least 15 times at this point, yeah. Um, And so, but we are going to talk about four key habits that if you'll begin to weave these into the fabric Of your relationships, I think you'll find um, that you're well on your way to really becoming an awesome friend. But each of these habits, while they're helpful, I think what you'll find is that they aren't exactly, they're not always intuitive and and they're also not always easy, um, which is why we're going to spend some extensive time talking about over the next four weeks. Um, But before we jump into today's habits, I wanted to give you just a little bit um, of an overview of some different characteristics of what an awesome friend looks like biblically. So on this next slide here, you may want to take a picture of it. Maybe you want to write it down if you're really ambitious. Um, but it's not going to be there forever. Uh, but the point of this thing is I want you guys to see um, a little bit about some different characteristics of what it looks like to be an awesome friend. And what I would really encourage you to do is take this list, uh, maybe sometime this weekend, um, And sit down with your Bible and look up each of these verses and begin to evaluate a little bit for yourself. Like, take some stock of how are you doing in some of these different areas as it relates to being a friend, Um, being an awesome friend, that is. Uh, So from this slide, what you see is, you know, an awesome friend, and this isn't even exhaustive, but an awesome friend forgives and seeks forgiveness. You know, they don't hold grudges. An awesome friend relishes time together. They're not counting down the seconds of You know, when, like, how long, much longer do I have to hang out with you? Like, they actually enjoy and are looking forward to time together. Um, An awesome friend tends to initiate, which means all men are not awesome, um, because men don't tend to initiate. But a good friend actually does initiate, um, because they don't just wait for everybody to follow up with them. Um, An awesome friend encourages. They're not looking to just tear people down, but they're actually looking to build people up with their words. Um, An awesome friend, they never fill gaps with suspicion but they choose to trust. You know, there's always going to be gaps in relationships. But an awesome friend chooses to assume the best about people until they're proven otherwise. And then an awesome friend appropriately defends their friends. They don't just backstab or talk about them behind their backs. Um, And then an awesome friend shares truth, even corrective truth, and they're honest about what they say. An awesome friend helps others with their goals they're not just thinking about what, what's in it for me, what do I want to focus on. An awesome friend inclines their ears to listen. They're not always trying to be the center of attention, but they're actually more interested in hearing what the other person has to say. Um, and then an awesome friend prays for others. and awesome friend spurs others on to walk with God. And when you put all these together, what you get is, wait for it, friendships. Ah. Took me a long time, but um, be amazed. That's right. Um, so, to kick off this series, I thought I'd talk about one of the habits in this uh, list that is probably one of the least intuitive, and therefore probably one of the uh, the least practiced habits from this list. But it's vital to really becoming an awesome friend, um, and that is this: that an awesome friend loves enough to correct. An awesome friend loves enough to correct. And you may be thinking, what? How did that make the list? You know, that's what bitter, angry people do. And that's what my parents do. They correct me. You know, my coaches, like maybe a professor, but not my friends, right? My friends are going to let me slide because after all, they're my friends. But I think that may have more to say with just, we maybe have a wrong understanding of what, you know, Correction really looks like. Sometimes we've experienced correction in a really negative way, or we've seen other people do it. So it's hard to think how is that an attribute of an awesome friend that they're willing, they love enough to correct? But biblical correction, biblically, it's, uh, we correct not to make people feel bad or to embarrass them. That's not why we correct. Biblically, we correct not because we've refused to forgive them or because we think we need to correct them in order to forgive them, you know. Um, And biblically, we correct not because we can't bear with them any longer and we're ready just to tell them off and get something off our chest, so therefore, we're going to let them have it. Which I'm sure all these things, each of you are like, yeah, I've I've experienced that. Biblically, we correct not because um, we are better than them or have it all together. And biblically, we correct for the other person's benefit. That's why we correct, period. Whenever someone's going down a bad path uh, and they're in danger of really hurting themselves and really hurting their relationship with God and with other people, that is when an awesome friend steps in and lovingly corrects. And so the goal of correction is always restoration, it's never condemnation. The goal of correction is always restoration. It's always looking to restore a relationship back into healthy friendship with one another, with the community, maybe their relationship with God. But it's never condemnation. That's not the point. Now, if that's a new idea to you or that idea doesn't fully make sense, or you're thinking, okay, I'm intrigued, but I'm not buying it just yet, I understand. Um, so tonight, I want to walk through an example of how Jesus did this with one of his good friends named Peter. And then I want to wrap up our time with how we could practically do that in our friendships as the needs arise. This is not something that you're thinking like, man, every day I'm hoping I have an opportunity to correct a friend. No, I mean, but I mean some of you guys think that, which is why we're going to talk about that. But but the goal is when it does come up, an awesome friend will do it. So the story of Jesus' correction of one of his friends and the restoration of his friend Peter, this took place after Jesus' resurrection. And it's recorded in John 21, 15 through 17. Now, some of you guys may have read this story before. It's a a brief story, um, but a pretty well-known one. But before we look at it, I want to give you some context before we look at it. Um, So you can really appreciate the significance of the conversation. Because sometimes these are conversations like this, you read it. And if you don't kind of look at all the backstory, it doesn't have quite the same weight to it. So during the final meal that Jesus is having with his disciples before he goes to the cross and dies. Um, and this meal, like if you read all the different accounts in the Gospels, there's a lot that happened in this meal. So in this final meal, this is when he gave the famous new commandment to love as he loved. It's in the same meal where the disciples are arguing over who's gonna be first in the kingdom of God, which can you just imagine that? Jesus just like, I'm gonna die for you. And they're like, yeah, but, but when you do, can I have... First dibs at the car, or the you know the uh, second place in the kingdom. I mean, it's it's pretty terrible. Um, this is also the same meal where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. This is that famous you know scene. This is also the same meal when Judas, one of Jesus' close disciples, leaves halfway through the meal to go betray Jesus to the Romans and the religious authorities. I mean, this is an awkward meal. Um, but also during this final meal, as if that was enough, this is when Jesus finally reminds his disciples once again that he's going to have to leave them, and he's going to go somewhere they cannot follow him, and he's going to die for their sins on the cross. But even as he's saying this, the disciples are still a little unclear. So who jumps in to speak but our favorite guy, Peter? You know, classic Peter, let me say it first, and then I'll think after, um, And he says in John 13, 36 and 37, he says, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, Where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. And Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Now notice what Peter didn't say in this passage. He didn't say, you know, why can't we follow you? You know, why can't um, we lay down our lives for you? And I and I think honestly, the reason he said, I and not we, is I didn't think, I think you get the impression of Peter's life as you read throughout, you know, his account in the gospels that Peter kind of saw himself as as kind of a cut above the rest, a little bit more of a committed disciple of Jesus, a little bit better, you know, a little quicker on the uptake than some of these other guys. Um, and it's as if Peter were saying, you know, hey, Jesus, I get that you're about to go somewhere really dangerous. I get that where you're going, you don't think the rest of these guys can handle it? And frankly, I agree with you. I don't think these guys can handle it either, but not me. Jesus, I'm Peter, the rock, remember? The stone, you name me that. Like, I can handle it. These guys, probably not, but me, I, I would lay down my life for you. And then Jesus answered him and says, Will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you would disown me three times. Ouch. After that strong declaration where Peter's like, I'll go to the... You know, I'll die for you. He's like, you won't even acknowledge that you know me. Three times you won't. Well, in Matthew, uh, one of the 12 disciples, he also records part of this conversation from the dinner that night in Matthew 26, 31 through 33. And this is what he says. He says, then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And then Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Here you have again Peter boasting about his allegiance and sort of elevating himself above the group as if saying, Jesus, if all these guys are chumps, if they all fall away, I will. After all, I'm Peter, remember? The rock. And so, and, and I agree. I mean, I, I'm surprised most of these guys even stuck around as long as they did. I mean, Judas, he's already gone, you know. Matthew, you know, he's a tax collector. I'm surprised he even got in the group. And then Doubting Thomas, they literally call him Doubting Thomas. You know, it's like, there's no faith there. I get it, Jesus. These guys, but me and you, come on. I'm Peter, after all. I'm the rock. I'm not going to deny you. And yet, in a few hours, in the middle of the night, Jesus is betrayed by Judas, who had left already. And he he was arrested by a group of Roman soldiers who were accompanied by religious leaders who wanted to see Jesus arrested and killed. And during the initial trial in front of the high priest, Peter is there watching from a distance, kind of warming his hands by a charcoal fire, and he's asked three different times if he is a disciple of Jesus, if he knows Jesus, and three different times he denies him. Big, strong, brave, cut above the rest, Peter denies that he even knows Jesus. And Luke records in his gospel account about what happened to Peter after he denied Jesus. It says, he went outside and he wept bitterly. He was so ashamed of what he had done. And honestly, I think that makes a lot of sense. He was probably ashamed, obviously, just because of what he did. But I think he was also ashamed because he thought, that's not me. That, I, I'm Peter or at least I think I am, I'm, I'm the, the rock, right? You know, like, that's not who I am. I'm not the one who, who would do something like this. You know, Matthew, he'd definitely do something like this, but not me, you know? And so he says he wept bitterly. Well, later that day, as many of you know, Jesus, he was unjustly beaten. He was unjustly crucified, and he died and was buried in a tomb, just as he had predicted and told his disciples he would. But also, just as Jesus predicted, three days later, he rose from the dead and was alive, which by the way, side note, that's actually the anchor to our faith as Christians. If you're wondering, you know, what is the anchor to my faith? Is it that I can prove every single thing in the Bible or that, you know, everything in the Bible has, you know, which you can, by the way, um, but is that the anchor of my faith? No, it's not. The anchor to your faith is a historic event that actually happened over 2,000 years ago that was witnessed by over 500 people, which is the resurrection of Jesus. Because see, if that did not happen, then as Paul says, our faith is in vain, and you might as well just go on and live as you want. But if Jesus actually did predict his own death and resurrection and pulled it off, then game on, death is not the final word, and you actually have hope. So that's the anchor to your faith if you are a Christian. Well, over the course of the next few weeks, Jesus appears to his disciples um, three times. And as you can imagine, If you just saw your friend die and then he appears to you, you're going to be a little shocked. You're going to be excited, probably also a little embarrassed because you're like, yeah, I I ran. That was me, you know, but you're excited either way. And it's on this third appearance that Jesus finally confronts Peter to correct him and to restore him. So what happened was Peter and some of the disciples, they're, they're out at night and they're fishing because they were fishermen and that's what they did to earn a living. They fished and you fish at night because the water's cold. And that's when the fish come to the surface, and so they, um, they—that's how they catch their fish. But it was a rough night; they didn't catch anything. And so, as morning is starting to come, and they're getting closer to the shores, uh, they begin to pull in their nets, and they see Jesus off in the distance. He's on the shore, and hes he started a fire, and he's got—you know—he's got breakfast cooking for him. But he—he he yells them in the distance, "Hey!" Did you catch anything? And they're like, no. And, he, and then he says, hey, why don't you go ahead and put your, your ropes on the other side of the boat as if, you know, six feet is going to make a big difference in terms of catching fish. But they do because Jesus says to, and they catch a boatload of fish, which just a side note, that's pretty awesome. It's like apparently Jesus can still do amazing things even after. So then Jesus invites them to shore after they all get, you know, finished getting all excited about this, you know, boatload of fish that they just caught. And he invites them to come over and have breakfast with them. And they're sitting around a charcoal fire and he's talking to them. And it's in this conversation that Peter and Jesus finally have that, that heart-to-heart conversation about what had happened several weeks earlier. And so it says in John 21, 15 through 17. I'm going to read it um, just to kind of go over it all. And then I want to kind of go back to each part sort of break it down a little bit, some things that might have happened. So it says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, notice from the beginning, Jesus came at Peter relationally. You know, he didn't come at him all hot and heavy and angry. You know, the first, like, if, if I was Jesus, like, the minute I was, you know, resurrected, I would probably go knock on all their doors and be like, so... Really, you ran away? Thought you were gonna stick up, you know? But he doesn't do that, you know. And it's like this is like weeks later. He's already re- been relating to him, hanging out with them, and he makes him breakfast on the beach. I mean, how many of you guys have ever done that for your girlfriends? Breakfast on the beach? I haven't, but I mean, you know, it'd be a good idea. Um, maybe I'll do it for my wife someday. Um, maybe for our fifteen-year anniversary. It's coming up. So he he comes at him relationally. He's not bitter. He's not angry. Um, but instead. He helps him with his fishing business, and then he makes him breakfast, and then he begins his conversation. And he asks Peter, he says, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Meaning, do you truly love me more than these other disciples? Because, see, you said you did. You said you loved me more than them. And yet, when push came to shove, you deserted me. In fact, you denied even knowing me. To which Peter rather quickly replied, still not fully Getting Jesus' point, he says, uh, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. After all, I'm Peter. I'm I'm the rock, remember? And yet, even as he's saying this, you know, the elephant in the room of his betrayal, Peter probably wasn't able to say with as much confidence as he would have liked. And as he's saying, yes, Lord, you know I love you, I bet he probably caught on to what Jesus called him, Simon, son of John. Simon, son of John. But no, I'm I'm Peter, remember? I'm the rock. That's Don't you still think I'm Peter? Well, if you, um, and as he's thinking this, Jesus replies and says, well, if you love me, feed my lambs. Meaning, Peter, if you really love me, you won't just do it with your words, but you'll do it with your actions by obeying me and taking care of your fellow brothers and sisters who are followers of mine. And not just talking about it. You know, see, it's one thing to talk a good game and say, yeah, I'm tough, I'm a leader, I'm, I'm following Jesus. It's another thing to actually do it in action. That's the kind of leader that Jesus is wanting Peter to become. And then Jesus asks him a second time. He says, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And notice in the second question, he's not asking him the same thing about the disciples. He's asking him even more a basic question than that. Not, do you love me more than the disciples? Just, do you love me, period? To which Peter, possibly beginning to get the point probably answered a little bit slower. And he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So Jesus replied again in a different way, but meaning the same thing. He says, then take care of my sheep. Peter, I want you to show your love for me, not just with your words, but with your actions. And then finally, just as Peter denied Jesus three times, Jesus asks him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And it says, Peter was hurt by this because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, was that conversation probably hard for Peter? Yeah. Do you think it hurt a little bit hearing that question asked three different times in three different ways from Jesus? Probably so. Was that the point? Absolutely not. You see, Jesus was reestablishing Peter as a leader among the disciples and reestablishing him in his relationship with him, and he needed Peter to understand some things if he was going to do that. I think what Jesus was trying to get across to some of he's saying, you know, Peter, you aren't a rock because you love me more or because you're somehow more special inherently. You're a rock because I made you the rock. I'm the one that gave you that name. And your hope and confidence and identity ought to be grounded in who I have made you to be not who some self-righteous achieved identity of your own. And yes, Peter, you probably do love me. I mean, I agree with that. But the reality is you probably don't love me more than the rest of these guys. You probably love me about as much as them. And Peter, you've grown. I mean, you've changed a lot since the first day you began to come around, but there's still a whole lot more growing to be done. And finally, I think Jesus wanted Peter to be reminded and to be crystal clear in the fact that talk alone is not enough, but real love is not shown by, you know, just bold declarations, but it's actually shown by your actions, by obedience. And as you look at the rest of Peter's life, I think you really see that he got the message loud and clear. He continued to be a leader. If you look at read the New Testament, the book of Acts, he continued to be a leader of the, Christ, um, the Christians that were starting there in the first century, and he continued to be a bold witness for Jesus, but it wasn't grounded in his pride and him thinking he was better than anyone else. It was grounded in his identity in Christ under the influence of the Holy Spirit, which allowed him to continue to be a courageous leader the rest of his life, even up to his death. And he did it in a spirit of humility, much different than he was doing it before. And according to church tradition, from men like Tertullian and Eusebius, Peter was actually crucified for his faith uh, by Emperor Nero in Rome. But instead of a normal crucifixion in which you're right side up and your hands and, and your feet are spread out, Peter actually, it was said by uh, church historians that he actually said, you know, I'm, I'm not even worthy to be crucified in the same way as my Lord and Savior. Crucify me upside down. That's a big difference than the Peter that we came across that was prideful and arrogant and running away from Jesus. But what if Jesus hadn't loved Peter enough to correct him? What if he had written Peter off as a lost cause or was afraid to have that awkward conversation because I don't know what he'll think of me, you know, and stuff. But what if he wasn't willing to have that conversation? All that ensued in Peter's personal life, all the influence he had and the spreading of Christianity and the helping people grow as followers of Jesus through his letters and his example all of that probably never would have taken place. And he probably would have died. We wouldn't even probably know who he was. He probably would have died as just some obscure first century Jewish fisherman, kind of haunted by his previous actions of having denied Jesus, and probably maybe never had a restored relationship with his Lord and Savior, if Jesus wasn't willing to have that conversation. But thankfully, Jesus was. And men and women, I would suggest to you that those are some of the very same reasons why an awesome friend loves enough to correct if the time comes up. Because we want to make sure we're seeking their good. Again, the goal is restoration. The goal is not condemnation. And so if you see a friend acting in such a way that their relationship with God or their relationship with you or with others is really kind of getting sideways because of choices of theirs, an awesome friend will love enough to correct them in a loving way. So what I, what I want to spend the remainder of our time talking about is how do you correct in a wise and helpful way? And I use that f- phrasing wise and helpful specifically because there are very unwise and very unhelpful ways to correct. I know because I think I've experienced and practiced all of them and uh, had some some rough patches in relationships. And so I am wanting you guys to benefit from my stupidity um, and. Proverbs 15.2, this is a good verse. It says, The tongue of the wise makes knowledge pleasant, but the mouth of the fool spouts foolishness. You know, wise people, if you've noticed, they have the ability to correct and to give truth in a way that's a little more palatable. I mean, nobody likes being corrected, but a wise person has a way to deliver correction in a way that it goes down a little more smoothly. But a foolish person, their correction is kind of like nails on a chalkboard, if it's even helpful advice at all, which it probably isn't. So how do we correct in a wise and a helpful way? Let me give you uh, fairly quickly here seven seven suggestions, and then we'll wrap up here. First, um, do your best to build a track record of catching people doing good and encourage them in that. Because, see, even if people know... That you love them, even if they know um, that you're correcting them, and, and they're doing it for their good. When you're getting corrected, it feels like a relational withdrawal from the emotional, you know, capital in your in your relationship. And so, we want to be making sure we're making lots of regular deposits in our relationships through encouragement, through serving them, through just time with them, so that when the time arises, that you need to make that withdraw from correcting them, um, you don't have an overdraft on the relationship. And for those of you that are not business majors and all those terms just went over your head, ask someone who's in a business class and uh, and they'll really help you on that. But I think you get the idea. Um, so second, ask God to convict them of their wrong without you having to correct them. Um, you know, I, I've definitely... Uh, done this before and seen it to be really helpful. Um, there's times when I see someone, and I, and my sometimes my instinct is like, well, I need to go have a conversation. But first I'll pause and go, well, God, would you just begin to change their heart on that and help them begin to see uh, where they're off on that? And sometimes God will really do that. And that's a really good thing to practice because um, it help, humbles us and helps us realize God's the main factor in that, and we're not God's hired gun, like, to go around correcting everybody, you know, a bunch of junior Holy Spirits here and stuff, and, uh, um, but instead, that's, that's really God's job. However, as you're praying that, um, and as I've prayed that, sometimes as I'm praying that, it, it becomes clear that God obviously does want them to change, but he's going to choose to help them change through me having a correcting conversation rather than me just praying alone. And so if that, if that is the case, um, I want to be ready for that, and that's where step three comes into place, or suggestion three: Be walking with God closely so that you can clearly, um, so that you can see clearly how to best help your friends. Be walking with God closely so you can see clearly how to best help your friends. Galatians 6:1, this is a good verse. it says, "Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the spirit should restore that person gently." but watch yourselves or you may also be tempted. You know, there's obviously a lot of good reasons to be walking closely with God, but one of them in the context of this verse is so that you can be walking with God closely to really help your brothers or sisters uh, when they fall into uh, a sin pattern, when they fall into something. Because see, if you're walking with God closely, not only will you probably have a little clearer view to be able to speak uh, truth in their life and to know how to help them, but you also won't get pulled into the same kind of sin and temptation yourself. And that's what he's warning here. He says, guys, watch out, because you could fall into the same kind of sin pattern as you are around them, because it just has a magnet effect like that. And so if we try to correct us, we want to make sure we're walking closely with Jesus, because if we're not, if you're not, and you try to correct, what, what tends to happen is a lot of times your, your correction kind of comes across as hypocritical, and generally, it's probably just gonna be poor advice in general, because you're probably not gonna be seen clearly, because you're not walking with God close. So, fourth, when you do correct, look to correct patterns, not just one-time events. And look to correct patterns that are really based on the Bible, not just your personal preference. Now, the the exception to that might be, and when I say correcting patterns, it might be if if a single event is just so significant or egregious that it probably needs to be brought up, obviously, you know, If you, it's not like, well, they only killed one person, so let's see if it's a pattern, <laughs> and then I'll look to correct, no, I mean, obviously, like, you know, there are times when you think, no, a conversation needs to be had, even if it's, it isn't a pattern, but in general, I would encourage you, um, look to correct patterns, and the reason I say that is, if you shoot at everything that moves, like, eventually people are just going to tune you out, you know, that, that not only is annoying, um, but, you know, if, if people did that I mean if, if can you imagine if God had a defining the relationship conversation with us every single time we messed up, we wouldn't get past our bed in the morning, like we'd be like, I ah, sending it ah, I' sending' like <sighs> but God is very kind, you know he's, he's a good father, He does address things, but he doesn't address every little thing because he's patient with us. And so we want to be patient with other people too. So look to address patterns now. You need to forgive them whether you address it or not, obviously. The goal is not like, well, once I have a conversation with them, then I can forgive them. No, you need to forgive them on the onset. But if you see it as a pattern, it might be something you want to have a conversation on. But if it's just a one-time thing, honestly, my advice to you, forgive and just move on. You know, that happens. And then the fifth suggestion. Look to correct in person and in private. It says in Matthew 18, 15, it says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you have won them over. You know, correction is hard enough as it is, but it's even harder when it's over text or a phone call and people can't read your tone of voice, your nonverbal cues. A lot of stuff gets lost in translation. So I would highly encourage you, correct in person and correct in private because again, even if... I correct someone or I get corrected in a group setting or in public, even if I agree with that person, defense walls are going up and I'm probably not going to listen very much because I am embarrassed and I don't want to be corrected in front of a group. And so, you know, it's, it's usually just best in general. Try to do it in private. Try to do it in person. And then six, we're almost done, guys. Two more and then we're going to be out of here. When you're talking to them, tell them what you see going on. And ask clarifying questions. You know, you might say something like, you know, it seems to me um, that from what I'm observing that this is taking place. Do you, do you see that or is there something else I'm missing there? Um, and then tell them what you see happening. But realize you may not have the full picture. You might, but you may not. You know, there may be pieces of the puzzle that you don't fully see, which is why you want to ask clarifying questions because maybe you're misreading it. But again, even if you're not, it's, it's always helpful to ask that. Ask them if they see what you're seeing. Because what, what I've found is sometimes, <clears throat> and, and I know this is true for me when people have corrected me and, and when I've corrected other people, but sometimes I know I'm doing something that's stupid or wrong or my friends do. And it's just when a friend is willing to finally have a conversation, and say, hey, you know what? Do you see that? Like, that's wrong. And I'm like, yeah, I see it. And they're like, so you're going to stop? I'm like, yeah I probably should stop (laughs) Um, but sometimes that conversation it's not that I didn't see it I just that conversation needed to happen before it kind of jolted me you know to stop it but there's other times when people just have real blind spots they don't even realize what they're doing is wrong or they just haven't even noticed that what they're doing is a pattern they're like I do that? yeah all the time (laughs) oh I didn't know that and so sometimes just being willing to point out those blind spots is really helpful that's why it says in Hebrews three, twelve through thirteen. It says, "See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you have uh, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Sin, sin tends to create a lot of blind spots in our lives. And what's interesting is sometimes something you can see so clearly in someone else's life is a blind spot in your own life you're like, they are so manipulative. And you're like, you're so manipulative, you know? It's like, they just can't control their anger. Have you looked in a mirror recently? Like, you can't control your anger. And it's like, so, you know, it's just really helpful. That's why we need this from each other. And then my last suggestion for how to correct in a wise and helpful way is remind the other person as often as you think of it in the conversation that you really do care for them and that you're just looking out to help them. You know, as we talked about at the beginning and we, as we saw modeled in Jace's example with Peter, correction is not a, not a gotcha moment. It's not a I'm better than you moment or whatever. It really is just one friend trying to help another friend get back on track with whatever they've gotten off track with in their life and really, really help them uh, towards the right path of really walking with God. See, no one intends to ruin parts of their lives, but it happens all the time. And what an awesome friend does is an awesome friend is willing to do something difficult and often uncomfortable, like lovingly correcting their friend when the need arises, if it means that they're going to be able to get back on track because they care for them. That's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor and theologian, um, who was one of the people that tried to assassinate Hitler, it's really interesting, but um, he, he's written a lot of really amazing things. Uh, He wrote this one little booklet. It's a gem called Life Together. Um, I'd highly encourage you to read it. It's really good. Um, But he wrote this quote in it that, um, that stuck with me that it's a fairly strong statement, but honestly, a pretty accurate one. And he says, Nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. Nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. But, Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from their path of sin. See, correction's hard, but your life falling apart's even harder. And actually, that's where a lot of correction tends to, sometimes we have to get out of the way of ourselves to correct because we're more focused on what are they going to think of me than thinking about their life is falling apart. Who cares if they don't think of you in a great way for a little bit of time? <laughs> like, is, that, is, is, is your image the, the main priority here? Or is them really being uh, restored the main priority? So as difficult as it can be to lovingly correct, if you want to be an awesome friend, I would encourage you. Be willing to do that when the time arises. And on the other end of it, if, if you do get corrected, be willing to receive it well. Now, I know this habit is something that many of our students here and core leaders and staff have really tried to implement into their lives. But imagine if this habit was something, a part of all of our lives. I mean, just imagine the lack of blind spots that would be in our community and just within Christian Challenge and then beyond if, if we all decided that we were going to be awesome friends and be willing to lovingly correct when the time arises. Not only would we have a whole lot of lack of blind spots, but there would be a lot of growth and a lot of thriving happening individually and in our group. And because we all have each other's best interest at in heart, we're all looking to willingly give correction when needed. And just imagine what the example of that would be to the onlooking world around us. I mean, people would begin to associate an awesome friend with a follower of Jesus. That would be awesome, right? And not only would that be awesome, but that would honestly be able to help those people step into a personal relationship with Jesus, and it would help Jesus really get the honor that he really do, because he's he's the example. He's the one we're trying to follow. So I would encourage you, look to be that kind of friend. Look to be an awesome friend that is willing to lovingly correct when the time arises. And if you are, I I guarantee you, you're going to find those kind of friends flock to you because people want to be around people who act like that, who are willing to lovingly correct them if the time arises. So let me pray for us and we're going to invite the band back up and we'll have some announcements after. So, Father, I, um, I thank you that you set the example with Peter. And really, lots of other examples are just... Um, what it means to lovingly correct. And God, I, I'll i be honest, I, I hate having those conversations. Um, that is not my wiring. I'd much rather have uh, peaceable conversations. But at the same time too, God, um, I love people enough and I want to follow you that I, I don't, I'd, I'd be willing to risk them thinking, poor thoughts or being angry at me for a bit, if it means them really being restored and changing. And so, God, I really do pray that that would be something that would be true of each of the men and women here tonight, that we would be willing to put other people's lives ahead of our own and be willing to have those conversations if they need to be had. And, God, for the people that are on the receiving end of those conversations from time to time, which we all will be at different points, God, will we will receive it with real humility, and really be able to take the words as uh, wounds from a friend looking to really help us uh, make progress in our lives. And God, I pray there would be lots and lots of less blind spots as a result, and just a lot of growing and a lot of thriving, both individually and in our community. And God, that the campus around us, as they watch this, there they would be heads turned because they realize, wow, that's a very different way of handling relationships. And they would be drawn to that, and more importantly, they'd be drawn to you.